announcements. Uh, I think we should all now sing the Cheers theme. What do you think? Let's just, let's just all hold hands and in three-part harmony. No, let's not do that. Uh, well, hey, grateful, you guys. If you've been around for a few weeks, you're noticing we're having um, some different faces up here other than me. There's a couple of reasons why we're doing that, because it takes hundreds of you to uh, run what we do every week to serve one another. And there are so many folks who are involved in what God's doing here, and it's so far beyond just myself and our team. It goes to you guys who take care of your kids all day and then come to serve kids who serve on Sunday morning. So we want to just give you some visibility of some other people who are part of our body who are serving God with their gifts. And we also want to let you know that as you see like Leanne in student ministry or John on the impact team, that if you have a specific question about that uh, ministry or what's going on there, that they're the person you can go to. And so to help get some faces up here to give you a resource. So uh, we are so grateful for all of those who give of your time to serve, and we couldn't do it without you. And so thank you. Um, I mean, I literally don't know how some of you do it, because, man, I'm a guy who likes to lay on my couch and eat me some chili after a hard day of work. And a bunch of you, instead of laying on your couch eating chili after a hard day of work, you get back in your car to serve uh, the person sitting next to you or somewhere in the room. So thanks for pouring into God's kingdom. And we may not always know what you do, but God does. And he sees it. And so thank you for your faithfulness in helping, uh, whether you're building a body here, helping us grow disciples or make an impact. So thank you. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get into what God has for us in the text this morning. Let me pray. Father, uh, we are grateful for the opportunity. Once again, it is a privilege that you have given to this body um, and so many churches in our country to come and be able to open up your word without any concern or fear or intimidation of what might happen to us. And we take that for granted because there's people who today, that's not their story and the security they feel. And so um, may we not be flippant about the opportunity to gather together as a body to learn more about you. Help us in the words today and uh, to let us understand the role we have in your kingdom and what other people in your kingdom are going through and how we can be of support to that. So, Father, uh, help me to speak wisely. Help us through the Spirit to understand how this impacts uh, us, and we're grateful again for this chance, Father. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our King, who one day will come back and make all things right. Amen. Well, if you're visiting uh, with us or you haven't been around the whole time, what we do is we open up a book of the Bible here at Calvary 99% of the time, and we go through it paragraph through paragraph, uh, many times verse by verse by verse. And so a couple of weeks ago, we kicked off uh, the series in the book of Revelation. We've chosen the last book of the Bible. And so for the next... Uh, year-ish, years, years, we're going through this, man, and we're going, we're going paragraph through paragraph through this book. And so here we are, let's kind of just review, catch up with what we did when we kicked this off. Here's the journey we're going to be going on together. Here's the big structure, the roadmap of the book of Revelation, and I'll just put this out there so you know where we're going, where we've been. We, we've talked about this prologue, um, and then Jesus, right? Those were the first couple of sermons that we did, and now we're in this section here where there's letters being written to churches, and we'll talk about that in a second. And then um, once we're done with that, and we'll be done with that right at the end of Thanksgiving, uh, we're going to come back and we're going to see this, this amazing reality and truth about Jesus. Then we're going to celebrate Christmas together and have a Christmas series for three weeks. Then coming back on January 4th, the next thing we're going to start to talk about is this is 
if you have any familiarity with the book of Revelation, this is probably, if you guys are just here, you bought the ticket for the, the Revelation show, this is what you came to see, right? This is the beasts with the seven heads, the people eating things in the street, people dying, trumpets, seals, bulls, demons, Armageddon, this is it, boom. And so there is this moment that we're going to talk about Starting in January, okay, what is that all about? Like all these things they're talking about, what is yet to come? How do we understand them? How do we try to interpret them? What do they mean? What do we do? And then we end our time in the book of Revelation with what ultimately the book is all about, which is hope and about the making of all things new and the making of all things right and no more death, no more sadness, no more brokenness, no more... No more abuse, no more pain, no more addiction, no more cancer, no more financial stress, no more kids who don't talk to you, no more spouses who fight because Jesus is making all things new. And this is where we celebrate that and we talk about that. And so that's kind of the where we're going, right, in the book together, uh, just to lay that out. And I'm excited about this. And what's so interesting is all of this, um, all the book of Revelation, when I kicked off this series, I did my little through the decades of revelation from Peter's eyes, right? Remember I talked about that Left Behind series? Okay, right, the book? <laughs> A week or so after, we went to somebody, we went to one of your houses, one of y'all's houses, and I was sitting right here at a table eating a delicious meal, and there on a bookcase in front of me was every single Left Behind book. And I thought to myself, I have probably terribly insulted this person and they've poisoned my food, right? But we talked about that this book of Revelation grabs us in a unique way and grabs our culture in a unique way, particularly these things about what's to come and what's going to happen. And that is still true. This past week on an online um, news portal, there was an article and it was entitled uh, Rapture Anxiety, right? Why many evangelicals fear anxiety and stress because of the rapture. That's is that in here? Maybe, maybe not. But what is the rapture? What does that mean? There is a secular news organization who's grabbing on to some of this stuff and talking about how it impacts us in our lives. And so we'll talk about that when we get there. I have a friend who's interviewing um, for a ministry job. And as he's getting towards the final part of the interview process, one thing that they are like drilling down on is, hey, tell us everything that you think about this, right? There is still this interest, there's still this weight given to some things in the book of Revelation about what's to come. But before God starts this book and starts this vision talking about all this stuff, before he starts talking about the things that are to come, where he begins, like we said in the intro, is he starts talking about the things that are. When the letter was written, where God chooses to begin the conversation is not here, not the end of the story, but in the real-time, present moment of what was going on in the culture and the surroundings and the life of Christians in that day, right? Specifically, when he talks about the R, and you can flip to the first slide we showed. Uh, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. There's the end. I forgot the last slide. My bad. Skip back to the first slide. Here's where God begins. God begins by talking about these seven churches right here. Right? This is in real time, what's going on. And before talking about Jesus coming back and the tribulation and all that stuff, he starts by talking about what is now. What was being experienced by the author, what was being experienced by Christians in seven real-life churches in that day. 
And the question is, well, why does he start there? Why did he start there? Why didn't he start with just the end? Why did he start with what was in the present? And the reason that he started here is because until Jesus does come back again and fully, right, the hope of Revelation, uh, if you're just trying to catch up to speed and you haven't read the book, is that one day Jesus literally is physically going to return to earth. He is literally physically going to return to earth. And when he does, he will be ruling on earth as the king forever. And everything that he originally wanted the story to be, it will be. The king will be ruling his kingdom forever on this earth and all will be well. But the king is not yet present on this earth ruling the kingdom. Instead, the, the, the story is that Jesus handed off to groups of believers like you and me. We said this the first week or second week. The responsibility to mediate his kingdom, right? There's things that are associated with the kingdom of God. There's values. There's truth. There's entering into the kingdom. There's what life in the kingdom looks like. And what God has said is, hey, until the king comes back the second time, I'm going to hand off the responsibility and the privilege of making things around here look like the way they should look in the kingdom of God and inviting people into the kingdom of God and letting them know how to get into the kingdom. And all that's associated with the kingdom should look like, right, as we wait for what it'll look like, the, the plan is that Jesus has handed that off to you. He's handed that us to, off to us together as a group of people. He has entrusted local churches with mediating his kingdom, Right? With, with, with making things the way he wants it to be in his kingdom and inviting people in his kingdom until the king fully comes back. That's our, our, our now, right now. And the question is, for lots of local churches, the question is for our local church, um, man, how well are we doing with that? Not, not how well are we doing Sunday services, not how well are we greeting people, not how well is a kid's trip to a water park, was it fun? I'm not saying those, and not, I'm not minimizing any of those, but I'm saying there does um, seem to be something more expected of people than just running the events that are associated with what a church looks like. There is this privilege of the king saying, hey, I'm coming back one day, but I'm not back yet. And when I come back, I will make everything the way it should be. And it will not be the way it should be until I come back. But until I come back, I'm asking you guys, do what I want you to do as a body of believers for the good of the kingdom, to expand the kingdom, make the world around where I've put you resemble the kingdom more. And the question that is before us is, man, how are we doing at that? We could talk about how well evangelicals in America are doing at that, but that doesn't help us. How are we doing at that? Are we thinking about that as a body, right? The whole reason we launched this new vision is to try to rally us around some of that. Um, and there's lots of different things that keep people up at night in your own career or your own parenting. If you want to know, one of the things that keeps a pastor up at night is thinking about, man, um, you know, I don't often... Some of you get mad at me. You're like, you're not just a pastor. You're the lead pastor of Calvary Church, whatever, right? But, I mean, God has given me the great privilege to kind of lead an amazing team and lead you guys um, 
as I guess the shepherd at the tip of the spear and man, how well am I doing at that, right? How well is my leadership helping us pursue what Jesus says? Are we just uh, running an organization or are we desperately trying to chase the responsibility of mediating the kingdom in here in Trumbull, Connecticut, in our surrounding neighborhoods. And some churches in this day, in 95 AD, when it was written, there were some churches that weren't doing a good job. They started really, really well, but along the way, they got distracted. They prioritized other things. They dropped the ball. And so before John writes about the king coming back, John writes about, hey, you're not churches. There's some of y'all who aren't serving the king well now. There's some things you're doing now, okay, some churches, but there's seven of you guys, well, five, um, who you need to improve. There's some gaps. There's some opportunities for you to get back on track. And so this every week for the next few weeks until, you know, as we're in this part of the series, man, it's a mirror for us to reflect what were they doing well, how are we lining up with that? What were they not doing well? How are we lining up with that? Have we lost sight of the key things that God wants us to be doing because we've allowed other things to become distractions or misaligned priorities as a church? We are not, you know, if I was sitting there right now, the the former litigator and whatever in me would be like, okay, wait, are they like about to announce some brand new initiative? Is this just Peter's new little talk leading up to? And so we're going to bring in elephants every week to do it. Ba- there's, no, there's nothing up my sleeve. Woo! Right? We're not, I'm not saying these things to set up some grand announcement about something new. I'm just saying, hey, in the ordinary cycle of us doing life together as a church, Are we doing it the way that God wants us to? And this is a chance for us to give ourselves a checkup. Um, And today's topic, you know, every sermon rattles around in my brain in different ways. And this one has rattled around in a unique way because uh, I'm a little sobered and I guess humbled as I approach what we're talking about today because a lot of things that I get up here and talk about in the text, there's some way that my experience has intersected with that, right? There's some way that in my day-to-day life, Uh, I I know what they're talking about it. Um, I have never experienced what the topic that is being written about to this group of people, I've never experienced what the people who would hear this letter for the first time were experiencing. Never. I've never, ever experienced um, what the people who would be continuing to read this letter 50 years from when it was written would be experiencing. Never. There are some people who have spent time at Calvary Church who we have baptized, who we have discipled, who we've connected with, who maybe even are here now, who do have that experience. But for the vast majority of us, what the readers of this particular letter to this church are going through is something we're not going through. And so I speak from a place that's a little uh, atypical. I don't have any firsthand knowledge of this because I haven't gone through it, but I also have a heaviness because I know right this morning there are people who are. There are people who are. And I could cheat. And I'm telling you, there are some pastors, maybe even some who uh, you listen to or podcast or think are the world's greatest pastors who cheat a little bit on this. I could come in here and say, hey, so today, here's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about when your boss is mean to you at work, what do you do? Or when your cable bill is too high, how do you handle that anxiety? We 
I, I could have spun it that way, but that would have been dishonest with you because this is not a letter written to a group of people trying to figure out what to do when their boss is mean to them or they didn't have cable, but what to do when money is tight. This is a letter written to a group of people who are trying to process, what do I do if tomorrow I am put in prison because I came to church on Sunday? What do I do if tomorrow the governor of Rome kills my wife because we came to church on Sunday? That, that's the letter that's written to, right? It's about what to know when your government literally is about to imprison or kill you because of your belief in Jesus. That's what these Christians were going through. So our text is Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. We're going to unpack it. We're going to walk through it, um, understand it, and then think about a few ways we can leave here um, with some application. So let me just begin, right? And uh, I do, I encourage you to bring your Bibles. There is nothing... Uh, nobody, we could, you could bring your Bible and not even know Jesus, but you could look good, right? But for those of you who do know Jesus, I would love for you to either bring a Bible or get a device, right? So, because I want us to have a familiarity with where things are in the Bible. And so whether you flip to the back of the Bible on a hard copy and be like, oh, there's Revelation, or whether you scroll up on your app to your Bible and click the last thing, you know in the structure of the Bible where Revelation is. And so Revelation 2, and I'm even thinking about pulling the verses off the screen, Oh, oh, oh. Ooh, baby, I may do it. We're handing out bulletins to you today because apparently it's too complicated for grown-ups to pick up a bulletin. I don't know, right? But we handed you a bulletin, but I'm like, bro, I may just make a bring a Bible. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe that's the sin in my life. I'm not sure. Here's Revelation 2. Uh, Verses, uh, we'll start in verse 8. To the, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write. So we, when we kicked off the seven churches series two weeks ago, we talked about each one of these is written to the angel. The angel, nobody really knows what that means. The angel may be, the, the word can also be translated as messenger in the Greek. And so it, the Greek word is the word messenger, which many times is used for angels because the angels are messengers. So some scholars think that this is referring to, you know what, I may not get rid of it because I like pointing. Pointing makes me feel like I'm doing something up here. <laughs> Maybe I'll just have a black screen and point in your imagination. So some people think that the angel is the messenger who actually delivered this to the church of Smyrna. Some people think that angel actually is what it means, is like a spiritual somehow uh, entity who is overseeing that particular church. And others think um, that it is written to like the leaders of the church, the elders or the pastors. Um, but anyway, ultimately, this are the words that are being delivered to the people within the church. And it's been being delivered to the people in the church in a city in that moment known as the city of Smyrna. There are seven actual geographical cities, real life cities that exist in this time. In each of those cities, there were churches. Uh, usually just one church. And so this is the city of Smyrna back in that time, Christians who were gathered together. Smyrna is in, is the, if you were to go and to try to go see where Smyrna is, there would still be a city functioning there. Today, it's in Turkey. It's not called Smyrna. It's called Izmir, Izmir. And so we got a map. And so Izmir is right here in modern day Turkey. But back in the day, it was called Smyrna. And the island that the author has been exiled to, kind of on house arrest, is over here-ish somewhere. Um, but Izmir is the city now. Uh, back in the day, it was Smyrna. It was a harbor town with an amazing and booming trade. It was a city that was known for its beauty, 
Uh, it was referred to as one of the most beautiful cities, and I think we got some of these on the slide if you want to pop it. Known for its beauty, known as one of the most beautiful cities in Asia. It was a center for medicine and for science, uh, rumored to be the birthplace of Homer. It's kinda, Homer's kind of like where the first flight was. It's North Carolina or Bridgeport? Bridgeport of North Carolina, everybody's fighting about where the airplane was tested or built, right? And people were fighting about where Homer, the poet, was from, but there, many people say that uh, <clears throat> Smyrna was one of the places. There were about 100,000 people who lived in Smyrna at the time that it was written. It had a Jewish population that was um, settled, and they, were very, they did not like this new group of people called these Christians because what Christianity teaches is different than uh, Judaism as far as who Jesus is and the Messiah is. And so there was this tension between the Jews in that city and the Christians in this church in that city. Uh, the, the Kind of the most poignant thing for our purposes is that Smyrna was very aligned with the Roman government. So Rome is in charge of this whole area right now, right? They're the empire over everything. And Smyrna was like the teacher's pet for the Roman Empire. You know how you were in class and there was that favorite student and the teacher's always like, I don't have any favorites. Oh, Maribel, you look so lovely today. Your paper was so... Teacher's pet. Smyrna was the teacher's pet of all the, a lot of the other cities. The Roman government and Smyrna had this huge, huge alignment. And in part because of that, um, they won the right to build a temple in Smyrna for emperor worship. What happened in Roman history, and this is history, you can look it up, but there for decades uh, was this concept of, hey, we should worship the emperor. Like, you know, like, hey, I'm kind of like a god, I'm kind of divine. Different emperors at different times emphasized this, and in different regions there was more of that, there was less of that. But right about this time when this was written, in the years after, uh, the emperor named Domitian, he, he, man, he made him a law that said officially, formally, state law is that I as the emperor am a god. And state law is that as the emperor, as the god, I must be worshipped and you can't worship anybody else. And so then there was this competition, right, kind of... We're not exactly sure this was written in 95, 96. That's kind of when it happened. But right around when that was being uh, issued and decreed, there was this competition. Well, we need to build a temple somewhere that highlights this worship. And so it was like cities competing for the Olympics. And Smyrna won the right to build this massive temple, which was the center point of the law that said the Roman governor Domitian needed to now be worshipped. And so in the city of Smyrna was this massive temple that aligned with the law that said, hey, hey, there's one God, and that God is this dude, Domitian, and if you don't worship him, you're going to go to jail, and you may get killed. This isn't preference. This isn't we strongly recommend. This is the law. And the little church, well, in that city were neighbors to this temple that said, hey, here's the place that you got to come worship Domitian, and they were worshiping God, and this conflict and this um, intersection of those two commitments to worship collided, and that's what they started to face. Interestingly, there's no criticism of this church, none. I think there's one other of the seven churches that is not criticized, uh, but nothing 
when God is talking to the churches, he looks at Smyrna and he's like, man, there's nothing I can tell you all to get better at. Right? Only encouragement, no exhortation. So what specifically, right, how does he flesh out what this church is facing? Well, he says that in verses 8 um, as the text continues. So verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Uh, rich spiritually, right? All the things you have in your relationship with Jesus, but as we'll talk about, but, but physically there was poverty. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So here's kind of what these guys were facing, right? He starts by saying, I know of your tribulation. Tribulation is a word that means pressure. It, it's referred to as persecution, affliction, um, and it was directly linked, what they were facing, this persecution, this affliction, this immense pressure they were carrying was directly linked with there is a law that you got to worship the Roman God. And they're like, nope, we're worshiping our God. There's a law that says we will put you in prison because it's illegal to worship another God and we may kill you, which they started to do because prison wasn't... The more they put them in prison, the more people were more faithful to their worship of God. So they're like, hey, guess what? We're going to start to kill y'all. There's a law that says we will eventually kill you for your worship of any other God. And there were Christians in the city of Smyrna who said, we are going to keep worshiping King Jesus. And that unwillingness to compromise in their worship of Jesus caused them to face, right, persecution, Affliction, tribulation, pressure, right? Weight, all of that. And then uh, John, through inspiration, kind of unpacks a little more different forms that persecution take, right? Like the way when that affliction, that persecution pressed into their lives, what were they facing? The first thing he said is, hey, I know the pot, right? Tribulation. And then there's three or four descriptors that give more detail to the type of that persecution. And he says, um, I know your tribulation, your poverty, your poverty. This word, there's different words. And I, right, so the New Testament is written in Greek. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Um, Greek, just like English, sometimes there's a word that can have two or three different meanings or nuances or different words for different things. Uh, there is a word for poverty that means, okay, money's tight, I'm stressed, I don't have a lot of things. That's not this word. This word is a word that describes even a harsher form of poverty. This is the word used to describe people who literally have no resources of their own and so they have to beg. This is what beggars in that culture were going through. And what he's saying is, I know that what some of you are facing because you are unwilling to worship the Roman emperor and you're worshiping King Jesus is you are being put in the place of being a beggar. You have deep poverty. They had the deep poverty because what was then happening in the city of Smyrna historically is there would be mobs who would go to Christian businesses and if you were a Christian business person who had your business, your mom and pop shop, man, those mobs would loot it and they would burn it. So you'd lose your income. <clears throat> there were people who were being fired from their jobs as part of the downplay of persecution because they wouldn't worship the king and this was, wouldn't be reemployed. They'd be blacklisted. And that was causing them to lose all their resources, lose all the income, and literally have to Beg. Second form um, that they were facing because they wouldn't worship uh, the Roman king, they worship King Jesus, is slander. That's what he says. I know tribulation. I know your poverty. 
I know um, the slander of those who say they are Jews but are not, but are synagogue of Satan. That's referring to people who actually haven't followed the Messiah, so they're not really the type of Jews that God wants them to be. And they were facing slander. They were historically being accused of atheism because they didn't worship the true king, the Roman emperor, right? So all these people in the city are like, bro, those, Christ, those people at that little church house, they're a bunch of atheists. They're, they don't believe in God or they're worshiping the wrong God. They were being accused of political disloyalty because they weren't aligned with the emperor and they're trying to create a coup and they're trying to create all this conflict and all these problems. This doesn't directly flow from the emperor worship, but another thing that was being added on to that was this accusation of cannibalism, like a legitimate accusation of cannibalism because of very difficult passages that Jesus says about how you have to eat my body. And so these Christians who were unwilling to worship the king, they worship Jesus, who were facing no money, no income, businesses burned, everything they've put their lives into, were then they'd walk down the street and people would think, man, they're trying to overthrow the government. They're atheists. They don't have any faith. They're godless. They're horrible people. And they're probably cannibals. And they were facing all that because they said, no, 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 no. We're going to worship King Jesus and not King Domitian. Then he continues to say, hey, here's what this persecution, this affliction looks like, right? You can flip to the next slide. I think we got it. Maybe we don't. Do not fear what you're about to suffer, right? So kind of the third thing that's a descriptor of persecution. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. The devil is about to throw you in some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Now, we're not talking about like the middle of Revelation tribulation. A few interesting things about this. Look what he's saying. You, what, what, this huge point of, you know who's behind all this? The enemy. Christians in Smyrna, everything that you're facing, the enemy is ultimately behind this because there is this cosmic eternal battle between God and between Satan. And you're getting caught up in that battle is what this this writer is telling these people. And behind everything bad you're facing is your enemy who is trying to destroy you, trying to destroy King Jesus, trying to squelch Christianity because he wants to win. And so the swirl that you're caught up in is going to go beyond just your poverty. It's going to go beyond the slander and it's going to go to imprisonment. You're about, he's telling them, right, prophetically, what is about to happen, what has been experienced already throughout the Roman Empire, but now what is about to be codified into law. And he says, hey, some of y'all, you're about to go to prison for your worship of King Jesus. He uses the phrase 10 days. What does 10 days mean? I have no idea. I have no idea because nobody knows what it means. Some people, again, say, well, 10 days means 10 literal days. I don't know. It's kind of maybe. Other people are like, there's so much symbolism in numbers in the book of Revelation, and so other people are like, well, I think, scholars, I think the 10 days means trying to signify a short period of time, right? Not 10 literal days, but like, ah, for a little while. And then other people, interestingly, think the 10 days um, refers to 10 different Roman emperors that throughout their different reign have persecuted Christians. We don't know, right? We don't know. But the big point maybe not is not worrying about the 10 days, the big ultimate point is, hey, these guys were about to be imprisoned. And then there's one more form of the persecution that it's going to manifest itself in, right? There's poverty, there's slander, there's imprisonment. And then in verse 10, 
he tells them the next thing that they'll have to face. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. For 10 days you will have tribulation. And then here's the next thing he says. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Because what he's telling you is, hey, it's not just going to be that you're going to lose your business. It's not going to just be that you're being accused of overthrowing the government or worship of false gods. It's not just going to be that you're in prison for a while because some of you who are reading this letter, that initial audience and in the decades after that audience, because about 50 years after this was written, um, the persecution was peaking. And then it declined and Constantine came in and it all stopped. Um, but what he's saying is, hey, for ultimately, for some of you, you're going to die. You're going to die. What is the reality that God wanted them to know and God wants us to know? Here it is. That Christians do and will face persecution directly linked with their worship of God and God alone. Christians do and Christians will face persecution directly linked with their worship of God and God alone. And some of you, or maybe some folks who are listening, um, maybe you're not thinking this anymore because I kind of squelched at the beginning, but maybe some of you are thinking, or you've read this before, and it's about like, hey, I know your pressure you're facing, I know your tribulation, and you're thinking to yourself, man, yes, I can relate, right? I, I can relate to what they're going through, right? And, and I think sometimes what we do as Christians, particularly Western Christians, is we experience something in life, and we say, it's persecution, I'm being persecuted. And, and we read passages like this that talk about people who are being persecuted and going through tribulation, and we think there's a direct correlation between what we're going through and what they went through, and we put ourselves in the same boat. So, four buckets of experiences that I think and I've observed and maybe even myself have made mistakes of uh, equating with persecution and and. We need to carefully, we need to speak properly, and we need to speak carefully. We don't, especially in these days. So here's four different things that sometimes we go through that we say, oh, yeah, Revelation 2, I'm persecuted. It's so bad. Okay, right? First thing, persecution directly flowing from your worship, belief in God. That's Smyrna. They're not going to worship another God. They're going to keep worshiping Jesus, and so they're about to be killed for that, or they're being imprisoned for that, or their family is turning them in for that, or they're getting their business burned because they say, I will not worship another worldview. I will not worship a different religion. I will not convert. We have had people who have sat on the blue chairs, who have gone back to countries after their time in the United States has done, who this is their story. That's not my story. And if you live in Trumbull, Connecticut today, that's not your story today. Sometimes I think what happens is we also, the second bucket, the second category is, um, this was a hard one to phrase. We experience pushback, friction, animosity when a, our Christian worldview conflicts with a non-Christian worldview, okay? So we're not being put in prison. We're not being killed. But, man, there are values, there is truth in this book that is different 
than the values and the truth claims in different cultures around us. And sometimes these, what we believe to be true and what different people believe to be true, there is a misalignment. And when that misalignment comes, um, there is friction, there is tension, there is you're uh, unloving, you're not caring, you're judgmental, you're intolerant, right? You're, you're not kind. And, and we get caught up in that swirl of, well, God's word says one thing about this issue, and some people in culture have a different perspective on the issue, and those two things don't align, and there is friction that comes from that. We're not being imprisoned, we're not being killed, but where there's an, not an acceptance, okay? So that's kind of a different thing. And sometimes we face that and we say, yeah, Smyrna too. I am being persecuted for my faith. Well, not like these people were. You're experiencing your commitment to truth that is not aligning with what other people feel to be true. And there is static. There is uh, discomfort. There is not a mutuality of... And there's swirl that comes from that. Another third thing. Now, what's interesting is God's word does, here's what's important. This is for free. It's a free footnote. God's word speaks to each of these things, right? We've done sermons on each of these things. There, is, there are verses that talk about this. There will be verses that talk about that. There will be verses that talk about that. But what I'm just trying to say that we'll be very careful about is these things are not what Revelation 2 verses 8 through 11 talk about. Second, third category that we sometimes say is, oh, yeah, I have tribulation. And you do, but it's when we just face general trials and difficulties in life. There are so many of us, man, life is hard right now. And I think if we passed around a piece of paper and asked you to fill it out with what you're going through right now that's hard in your life and drop it in the offering box anonymously, I think we would be... uh, humbled by what some of us are facing, <clears throat> the, the anxiety, the health situations, the loss, the tension in relationships, the, the just, and th- there are general trials and difficulties in life because we live in a broken world that doesn't yet run the way the king wants it to run. And th- I am not minimizing what any of us are facing in your own personal lives, in your financial lives, in your relational lives, in terms of addiction, in your mental health lives, in your spiritual lives. And that is true, and that is heavy, and there's a lot of the stuff that God's Word speaks to that to try to help and encourage and nurture. All I'm trying to say is, though, just because you're going through that or I'm going through that doesn't mean we're going through this. Okay? And just because we're going through this doesn't mean we're going through this. And then there's this fourth thing. I said it as spiritually as I could. (laughs) Um, Do you know what this is? Right? Look, look, I I said this uh, this past week. I've told you all that during COVID on my day off, I go uh, make the most delicious chicken sandwiches ever at Chick-fil-A. I've worked in a lot of jobs in my life. That is literally the only job, right? Working in that restaurant environment on my day off because we were doing only video, blah, blah, blah. My buddy needed help. I'm like, yeah, whatever, let's go. Um, Man, you cannot stop and talk because it is constant. 
because all y'all are still ordering chicken sandwiches, right? It doesn't stop. Every other job I've had in my life, you got downtime. You can grab a cup of coffee. You can wander over to your buddy next to you and be like, hey, right? Like most 99% of jobs, you get a little downtime. We have at least four minutes just to chit chat and, and nothing. That is not the case, right? And there are some people who like, you know, you're on the clock and there are 42 french fry orders and you're supposed to be making french fries. But what some of y'all do is like, well, I just want to have a Bible study with my coworker right now. Right? And then you're like, well, yeah. And I was on the clock supposed to be making french fries, but I stopped. And I got all the kitchen crew together when it's the middle of a lunch rush. And I just had a little Bible study outside in the loading dock for 15 minutes. And my boss yelled at me. Can you believe that? Yes, I can believe that because you're a moron. <laughs> You are not being persecuted for your faith. Do you hear me? I know two of you have decided to leave Calvary Church right now, and I'm kind of not kidding. That is not being persecuted for your faith. That is being properly criticized because you're a bad employee. Do you hear, do you hear me? I'm serious. If your job is to work at the emergency room and take care of patients from 3 to 11. And if a patient comes in in cardiac arrest and you say to yourself, I'm just going to go over here and study the revelation notes from Peter's sermon, and the boss fires you and the family sues you, it's not because you're persecuted for your faith. It's because you're a lousy doctor. Because you didn't do what you're supposed to be doing as an employee. If you leave here and you go 99 miles an hour down White Plains Road and a police officer pulls you over and you say to the police officer, officer, I'm rushing to get to the Galaxy Diner and I just left church where I worship Jesus. And he says, or she says, that's great, here's your ticket. Do not email me about how the town of Trumbull is persecuting Christians at Calvary. You broke the daggum law. But you know what some of us do? Can you believe how I've been persecuted for my faith at Chick-fil-A because they fired me? Can you believe how Yale put me on probation because I had a Bible study when I should have been working the code? Can you believe how the town of Trumbull is trying to persecute Calvary Church? No. They're not. And when we're not facing persecution, like Smyrna, this, when you and I are not facing this, we have the luxury of flippantly and cavalierly saying that what we're experiencing here is religious persecution. And when we do that, we demean and we minimize what other brothers and sisters around the world are facing today who are being persecuted. This is tough. Look, guys, we have got to figure out how to properly stand up for truth in the culture in which we find ourselves in a way that is helpful and meaningful for the good of God's kingdom. we got to figure that out. We got to know what God says to us when you've gotten a cancer diagnosis that is rocking your world that's out of the blue. That is, man, so heavy. And those are weighty and God speaks to it, but we dare not talk about this. And I think what we've done in America is we've gotten lost in the weeds down here some, and we throw the word around cavalierly and flippantly, 
and it's not helpful. One day, might we in America be told we can't gather together at Calvary Church to worship Jesus because we are gathering to worship Jesus? Might we be told that? I don't know. I'm not a prophet, and it ain't in the book of Revelation, right? Might we? We might. But we're not at that day yet. When we get to that day, we need to be ready to stand up for truth. But we also need to be careful just because the fire marshal says, make sure your smoke detectors are working or else I'm going to shut your services down, that we don't try to say we're being martyred for our faith. No, you're not. The fire marshal doesn't want you to burn to death. And I think we've, we've, I don't know if we've positioned ourselves well if we ever get here. Because I think at least in Western countries, we've trivialized what it is and maybe haven't helped ourselves in that. We need to let the reality of this category land on us, even if we aren't facing that today. Because that's what's landed on us. And too often, we don't know what to do with it. We're not facing it. And so too often, pastors like me will principalize it. Right? They'll, they'll, they'll minimize that this is what the text is talking about. And they'll tell you what to do when you're stressed at work. No, that pastor is not preaching this correctly. Okay? In AD 95, there were people who were facing this, who were listening to this letter. Today, in 2022... Even though it is not my story, there are countries, and I know that there are some people here who have told me that this has been your experience. Man, where if you come to a gathering like this, you're going to be looking over your shoulder when you leave because if the government finds out you were here, something's happening to you. Something's happening to you. That is what brothers and sisters this morning, this hour, this day, who are gathering in groups around the world in different countries face. I don't face that. There's countries with anti-conversion laws that if you convert to Christianity, that's illegal, and you can be fined, you can be imprisoned. You need... Man, during the Impact Conference week on Saturday night, I think it's Saturday, October 15th, we're showing a movie called The Insanity of God. And it is about... Well, you know, most time, Margaret, let me preview this. Margaret leads our mission team. I previewed the movie. And most times at missions, when you see movies at missions conferences about here's why you should go be a missionary. And this is not about here's why you should be go missionary. But maybe some of you should go be a missionary. But this is about what Christians are in different countries are facing in persecution for the faith. And the question that the author asks who's faced his own personal tragedy as a missionary is this question, is following Jesus worth it? His faith was rocked because of his own personal tragedy. And it rocked him. And he thought to himself, I've given up everything for Jesus to go serve in this country as a missionary. And God let this happen to me. And he asked the question, is it worth it? And the rest of the movie is him taking time to go interview Christians around the world who are being literally persecuted for their faith to try to learn from them whether continuing to faithfully worship Jesus and serve him is worth it. It impacted me. I... Um, I wept. You may not. I'm getting soft as I get 50 years old now, right? I'm like turning into my wife who cries at commercials. Um, But I think, as I think about this subject, um, and man, I'm sorry it's late. I don't know how it got to 10.15 already, but we're kind of almost done, not really. Um, (laughs) 
you know, I think uh, what's humbling about this, and especially on missions trips I've gone on and whatever, is, uh, man, we're so overfed and over-resourced in America and the United States, and we're, we're just, we don't even care. I mean, there are so many Christians in the world who, I mean, if they could gather together like this right now, that would be so amazing for them. They yearn, yearn to do that. And so many of us are like, eh, I'll, I'll squeeze in gathering with the body of Christ if it's convenient and if I can get my poached eggs done on time on Sunday. I mean, I don't, you know. So it's just, we have so many resources on this. You could learn the Bible better than I know it on your own and self-teach yourself. But um, I just think we're, we just have so much that we've become ungrateful for it. And we've taken it for granted. And that is, and I don't mean you, I mean us. Um, and that's, that's not a good thing for us. Using 2021 statistics, and I did the math, um, if you divide the number of Christians according to an organization study in 2021 who are martyred per day, killed per day, by the hours in the day, what you find is that a person, if, if you're a Christian in the room this morning, and I know not everybody is, and I'm grateful you're here, but if you're a Christian in the room this morning, a person just like you, just like you, got a family, or maybe doesn't, but would love a family. He's trying to figure out, right, man, how do I put a meal on the table, who's got amazing things in life, whose back's getting a little sore, who's got all the stresses you'd have, all the things that you love and are meaningful to you. A person just like you and I, if you're a Christian, if you do the statistics and break it out per hours in the day, a Christian is killed every hour and 45 minutes. Breaking out the statistics, right, on average, a Christian who's just like you. Maybe their skin is a different tone. Maybe their skin is the same tone. Maybe they eat a food that's different than you. Maybe they have means of transportation different than you. Maybe their house looks different than you, but their faith isn't different than you. Man. So when you start thinking about that, Start thinking about someone's grandma, someone's son, someone's mom. <sighs> One hour, 45 minutes, they see Jesus because they weren't willing to compromise. Man, it's heavy. That means in the time that we've been here together, if you stay from here through discipleship class, uh, about two Christians will have been killed on average. What does God want Christians to know when they face that persecution. Revelation 2.9. This is what he says. I know your tribulation. Right? I know your tribulation. Here's what he wants them to know that he sees. He sees. Jesus, their king, sees what they're going through. We may not see that person, that pastor, in a small village in India who might be beaten because, tomorrow because he gave a church service today, but Jesus does. We don't know the names of Christians who are sitting in a prison cell in North Korea, but Jesus does. We don't know that grandmother in Afghanistan who, because she has a Bible, may be killed this week, but Jesus does. 
And what does Jesus want those people to do as they face persecution? Verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. And then going on further, be faithful unto death. He, what he says to those people is, look, I see it. I see it. But what I want you to do is to face that and do not fear and remain faithful. Do not fear and remain faithful. The nuance of do not fear is do not be afraid of anything or anyone. And they should not fear because what's written in this is the fact that in some supernatural way, God is with them. And it's amazing when you read the story of martyrs, right? For many of them, not all of them certainly, but many of them, there's this unbelievable peace in that moment that's recounted. And you're like, I couldn't do that. Like, how does someone do that? And in some way that I can't comprehend, these truths of Scripture come true for them where Jesus sees and he says, do not fear, remain faithful because I am with you in that moment. What's so interesting is that Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to remove you from it. He tells them it's about to happen. You will suffer these things. But what's woven throughout the story of Jesus is that some powerful way he will be present with them. And then he doesn't leave them without hope because he continues and ends in verse 10. And he says this, right? Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What he's saying is, hey, you may physically die but you're not going to eternally spiritually die. He wants them to know that the hope they have is eternal life with God. I'm going to call the worship team up here, um, and we are going to sing this last song, uh, but, but here's what I would challenge us to do today, right? Look, if you're going through those hard times in life, there are lots of sermons I've done on what to do when, tribulation, when life is hard, when you face speed bumps, when the cancer comes, when the bills aren't paid. There's tons of encouragement in Scripture. But what do we do with a text like this when on its face it doesn't speak to 99% of us? Some of you it does. I know that. I know that. I've baptized people. I mean, when they got out of the tank in the United States and went back to wherever they went back, I don't know what might have happened to them. 99% of us, this on its face doesn't impact us right now. So what do we do when it does, right? Well, I want to challenge us in three ways. I want us to first, and this is really important, okay? It's really important, particularly in the next several years, as we're going to talk about what should laws in our country be and how should our country be run and how things are not in alignment with Christian worldviews and values, all of which is significant. But look, will you commit to being more careful in what you refer to as being persecuted? Will you commit to being more careful in what you refer to as being persecuted if the fire marshal comes in here and tells us to put up a fire extinguisher that's like not 50 years old? They're not persecuting us for our faith. If you get your speeding ticket because you're speeding, we're not being persecuted for our faith, right? Uh, second thing is this. Would you be willing to educate yourself and pray for those who are persecuted? There's an amazing resource, opendoorsusa.org. I think it's on the slide behind me, opendoorsusa.org. There's a well-done two- or three-minute cover video for you to watch, and then you can get some stats about persecution around the world, and there's a prayer way, specific ways that we can pray um, 
some of us had the opportunity this week to meet with somebody who is from a country where there's persecution increasing and there's uh, anti-conversion laws and um, man, she's leading and involved in an amazing church planting network there. And her one request was, we need the church in America to pray because there is um, comfort that's hard to describe in knowing that other Christians are praying for us. Having the assurance that people are praying for us in some way enables us to work through this. Um, and the third thing I challenge us with, uh, and I'm sorry for the nursery workers we went late, but we did, uh, is to be aware of the complacency, softness, and apathy that can occur to those not facing persecution. You, as a believer, I, as a believer, have the risk of becoming complacent and apathetic and soft because our life is good. <laughs> because we're not facing what others are facing. And there is this, this, look, let me just leave this, leave you with this and you think about it. Four of the top 10 countries that Vasilier had the most persecution against Christians, ready? Four of the top 10 countries in terms of Christians being persecuted. Iran, Afghanistan, Somalia, India. Iran, Afghanistan, Somalia, India. Four of the top 10 countries with the most growth in Christianity. Iran, Afghanistan, Somalia, India. Iran, Afghanistan, Somalia, India. Do you know where there is no formal, codified, legalized imprisonment of Christians in countries like America and England? And do you know when in 2021 there was like 0% evangelical growth? Countries like America and England. There's something there. There's something there. So will we be willing to commit to being careful in what we talk about in terms of persecution, to educate ourselves, and to be aware that because we have incredible freedom in this, none of you are looking, well, I don't know if that's true. 99% of you have no reason to look over your shoulder when you leave here, when you pass a car to see if anybody's watching if you came here. We have so much freedom, and we have so much softness and consumerism in the American church. Um, all right, we can't sing the last song. I think Jim Taylor's giving me hints because there's kids running around upstairs <laughs> opening the thing. <laughs> He's so subtle. Um, but man, th you know, I think uh, I'd encourage you to come to the Impact Conference. There's going to be threads of this. And uh, man, we're going to get through the book of Revelation and there's special passages talked about those people who have been martyred for their faith. Um, so let me pray, and then we'll wind our time up together. You know what? We are going to sing the last song. <laughs> I hope you hear everybody clapping, Jim. <clears throat> and let's do this. Can we sing this? Um, man, let's sing this last song. Uh, let's sing this last song as like a prayer that this will be the truth that people who are being persecuted today may know. Okay, we as a community of faith are going to sing this song as a prayer uh, that this truth will be embedded in the hearts of people who are facing persecution today, okay? <laughs>